0: okay Nunat has promised me that this is the last week you will be subjected to my my singing tunes of doo 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 doo, doo. but I'll I'll hand it over to him for the rest he will have a <laughs> a theme song or whatever from next from next week
1: that is the expectation and uh, with that hope uh, <laughs> I welcome you listeners to another episode of everybody's eats Uh, I'm your host, Nanal Barbarika, joined as ever by my lovely co-host, Alexander Collings. And today's episode (laughs) is a deep dive on uh, Toulouse FC. But before we jump into the Toulouse section itself, I think uh, it's worth talking about the headlines of Ligue 1 in recent weeks. Uh, We'll start with Will Still's rounds, Alex. They've finally finished their unbeaten run at the hands of Igor Tudor. Now, the next manager who's being most talked about as the unbeaten guy, Didier Diga, at Nice, um, he's really changed things for them, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's finally maybe um, a relief that Will Stills finally lost. So we we can stop seeing all of those tweets of Will Stills now in 18 unbeaten games, but he's still getting fined 25,000 or whatever every week. we've we've got a relief from that because Didga does have his um, license, does he He not? He
1: doesn't either no, he doesn't actually.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay so we're not quite freed from them yet that's sad, Um, but no, he's doing a good job there, Um, we spoke about him a couple weeks back pretty much continuing in the same form as he has done, no great um, revolution tactically I would say, maybe from what Favre was doing, but basically going back to Back to what Galtier was doing beforehand um yeah but I think one thing that I would say is that he's given a lot of power or freedom to the players and you are seeing guys like Kefren Thuram really growing into the player that I think everyone who does watch Ligue 1 has known he could be and can be for a while now um but also Jean-Claire Tudibo who's had you know kind of a journeyman career right at the beginning of his career, but now he's still young, what, around about 22 years old, really coming into his own now at um 23 years old, coming into his own, having probably the best season of his career uh, at Nice at the moment, and it's it's really good to see.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, especially with Thuram, he's really benefited from, like, basically being free freed to do his own thing in midfield and really, uh, you know, sort of exploit his attacking strengths in the final third, and you see him often carrying the ball with grace and poise and just uh, having Boudaoui behind him and Aaron Ramsey has really helped that midfield. We'll quickly touch on another manager, Alex, who has also been unbeaten in League and that people might not have heard as much of, uh, Michel de Zakarian, who's recently come in at Montpellier, previously managed Brest and guided them to 11th last season. He's had a relatively successful spell so far at Montpellier. Yeah,
0: I mean, he was like, this is the second time back at Montpellier. He spent four years from 2017 to 2021, Um, where I think he did pretty well. Like, that was a good spell as well. Um, And now he's come back. What, a third manager of the season for them already. But, yeah, unbeaten in six games. They've done really well so far. We need to tuck into some of their footage and actually see... How they're doing, but I mean, why he's been a great player for them all season, and he's got what five goals in six games for them now. Um, and Savinia, Teji, you just put his name there, Savinia, because no, I mean, see, yeah, is, 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 right? is our favorite
1: <laughs> of both of us, so I just think it, it's fair that we mention him and praise him as always. He's had about we... what three goals and one assist in this six, uh, six game run, um, which is yeah, we, we come to expect that from him. He's the central hub of everything, yeah, that I think. There.
0: With Teji, it's never him dropping form. He's just always the guy carrying the side to somewhat. So he's just carrying them a little bit less at the moment. Um, But yeah, it's good to see them doing well. I like Montpellier as a side. They bring something different. Deze Keren is always a tough coach, I think. Especially for Lyon in recent years. So maybe I don't like them that much. But especially for the bigger sides, he's put up tough tests um, against them. So yeah, it's good to have him back and doing well in the league.
1: Definitely. Another player who is back to form, uh, Lois Openda for Launce, uh has scored five goals in his past two games, leading to back-to-back victories for Franck Hayes' side for the first time, I believe, since before the World Cup, which is quite, uh, quite a staggering thing if you think about how well they've done uh, in the first half of the season. And now, sort of coming back from that inconsistency a little bit since the World Cup restart, Openda has had 14 goals this season, non-penalty goals from 12.5 non-penalty XG and two assists on top of that as well. As Alex, I think we really see that Lawrence has a team perform better when he's on the pitch, don't we?
0: Yeah, I really didn't get why he got dropped. I understand when they had the January signings coming in and Tomasson and Fulgini, then they moved Sotoka up to centre-forward. But I didn't get the reasoning why, especially for trying that for so long. Not that they necessarily... Did particularly badly during that run, although it did kind of coincide with a little bit of a stumble, but more so just because Append has been insane the whole season. Like you speak about 14 goals, right? And the two assists, but it's also 0.85 MPG plus assists per 90 in the league this season. Um, And they were doing really well with him up front. I didn't get dropping him. um, But yeah, he's just been an insane player. One of the best players in the league. Um, You know, quietly, one of the best players in the league this season. Uh Do you have any idea why he got dropped for Sotoka I'm still not really figured it out. It, they really did lack that little bit of edge and a little bit of sharpness, particularly inside and around the box. He, he seems to, he seems to really work with that accelerated play into the end and making things happen. So, yeah. Well, what do you think? I, why? I Sotoka? mean,
1: so depending, so judging by what Frank Hayes has said, he's not really perfectly justified it. He has said that, you know, when you play with Sotoka, you don't play the same way as you do with someone like like Openda, of course. Uh, I think in their most recent game against Montpellier, which was a 1-1 draw, he mentioned that Sotoka had a good game, even if he didn't score. I just think it's a, it's a case of, like you said, you know, betting in those new signings, betting in Fulhini and Thomson and just trying different combinations in attack. And although they've had a uh, sort of mixed bag of results the goals haven't necessarily flowed in the same way as they do when Openda's in the side and when they are in full strength. Because I think appenda's influence really extends beyond the goals even. He is a great presser of the ball and he really sort of spearheads that attack and that lounge press from the front. And you see a lot of his goals, they don't tend to come from big chances, like you know clear-cut chances in, in front of the goal. He can really finish from tight angles and just really challenge defenders in a multitude of ways. And that's why I think he's... He's clearly the better striker, and I mean saying that before this before this run of two games, uh, two game run of back to back goals, he hadn't found the back of the net in eleven games. So I think there were some mm-hmm. questions to be asked of his form, but I think he's answered those uh, pretty effectively in recent games.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's probably why he did get dropped in the end. I kind of forgot he had that little bit of a dry spell, but. But yeah, I think it's good to see him doing well again. I think he's had a great season. Um,
1: and and yeah. Okay, well, moving on to another side that haven't done so well <laughs> of late, Alex. Lorion, I know you're really particularly keen to talk about uh, Regis Libri and what's what's happened there since the January window, where they lost, let's not forget, they lost Dango Atara and Theramoffi. So tell us your takes, Alex. What's What do you think has gone wrong with Lorion? Yeah, I'm
0: just interested to see how they do, you know, post-Mafi, post post-Atara. Post um, and and I, I think, as people would know, I, I've been a big fan of um, Lepri in terms of what he's done this season, particularly in the beginning of the season. Um, I really do like sides that are strong defensively, but very good in that transition to attack, um, especially the more underdog sides. And I think Lepri basically does, as a very good defensive unit, but also transitioning into the attack, there's really good ideas that are both structured but allow for player expression, and I think that's often a hard thing to, to kind of balance. Right? Often you get play like very direct play, but he kind of does it with like quick connections and obviously lots of speed and directness. But it's it's a nice combination, and I thought it'd be interesting to see bringing guys in like, um, of course, Fav from from Lyon, um, then Makengo, someone who can actually help dribble out maybe better than the players they had uh, uh, apart from um, Enzo, of course. Um, and then who did they have replacing? Thingy again, I've forgotten his name. Um, Dieng. Dien, yeah. Sorry, my apologies. Yeah, having Dieng um, as the guy to kind of finish that stuff off in that like lightning fast, I thought that there was really good business done. Um, don't forget Iman Curry, we've not seen it all, so maybe he's been forgotten himself. But But yeah, I thought they were really interesting players to kind of help him build and see what he can do next. But in a way, I think there is the sense that almost you're also seeing in the Premier League with Newcastle, they did really well in the beginning of the season. They caught some teams by surprise with their sort of defensive approach, right? Um, and that the counter-attacking approach. But when you don't have enough ideas in settled possession, once teams start to sit off against you a little bit, it does become harder to to break them down and then also bigger teams... In the second game, of this, you know, the second fixture of the season, after being caught a bit cold in the first game, they've, you know, their analysts and stuff have figured out ways to kind of nullify you. And I think that is somewhat true for maybe Liberty struggles, lorient struggles in general. Um, but having said that, I was looking through some of the, some of the, just the stats um, from the games I haven't really caught. And they have been having really impressive possession numbers compared to what they did have so maybe that change is coming and the results just aren't quite coming with it yet um they also dominated games like um versus Ajaxio in terms of x3 in terms of possession so maybe we are seeing some possession ideas coming to the fore which I think they do have the players for and I think if you can if Libri can kind of combine that with the defensive and transition game that he has I think I think yeah it would be a very very strong team again um obviously building good attacking philosophies and settled possessions one of the hardest things to do for coaches we've seen in the modern day especially these modern coaches um but i think that's the next step i'll be interested to see um if you have any thoughts how they've been doing maybe it's too soon yeah
1: yeah i think uh that's the thing though i I feel like they are sort of still trying to figure out like you know say the ideas in possession. Uh, after dealing with the exits of of Morphy and Watara in the in the January window, and when you look at some of the underlying data for the season as a whole, you know Open Play XG according to the uh, according to the analyst 26.22, which is fairly mid table ish, and they've scored 24 mm-hmm. goals from that figure. They've actually overperformed in terms of their defense, so they've conceded somewhere around 35 XG. Uh, it, from open play and conceded 28 goals from it so seven lesser than they should have conceded which i think is is a is a positive reflection on the strong defensive uh, uh, principles of of Le team in the first half of the season at least but i think yeah we'll we'll see probably a more fully uh, developed side by the end of the season and maybe that will push on in the uh, in the start of next season
0: of course, this is a team we do have penned in for a deep dive. So hopefully, by then we'll be able to have a really nice comparison of, you know, before the window and after the window.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I think lastly, Alex, it's important for us to touch on one key exit that's happened uh, outside of the players, which is uh, Paul Mitchell. He's uh, announced that he's be leaving Monaco, and um, you know he joined Monaco in what 2020. And they've had two third place finishes since then, which is pretty much the same as you would expect from Monaco, even before he joined. And that's
0: how they had been doing beforehand as well. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, you know, in terms of the players that have come in, in in his time, you know, the, some of the notable business, we've seen Axel de Sassi, Carpindiata, Caio Henrique, uh, some good early signings there. Do you think as a, as a whole, has his time been positive for the club?
0: It's interesting, like, he has a very, very, um, big reputation, right? Actually, when we were doing this back, I kind of got him, like, one window late in my mind, so I thought he might have been the guy that was responsible for that January window just beforehand they'd brought, before he joined, right, they'd brought in Aurelian Chiumeni and Yusuf Fofana, yep. two big players, obviously, Fafana's still at the club, Chiumeni left for $100 Fafana will probably leave for a good sum if he keeps up this trajectory, um... So I thought that they that he'd maybe been involved in those, but that's also, before we even get to the impact that he's had at the club, that is a sign that they were doing good business, right? I mean, they'd also spent big on players like Wissam Ben who was 29 at the time, but he's, I think they spent about 40 million euros on him, but he has delivered on that price, I would say for sure, right? Um, he's had some good signings, like you said, De Sassi, I think, has has come through. um Enrico, Van both big um Big talents in the fullback areas. I think Breel Embolo has been a good signing. Uh, Mo Camara, none that I would say really move the needle, or especially for French league clubs, even even the big ones like like Monaco, you do buy players with this idea that a Premier League club or a Madrid or a Barca will will jump in or Bayern will jump in and and spend a lot of money on them. I don't see any of those players really going for that. Maybe Van can. He's still young, 21, doing really well. Um, But at the same time, he's also had some misses. Mm -hmm. Bodu, like, I'm hesitant to to say, like, it was obviously a bad move. I don't think it was obviously a bad move, but it is kind of a big profile move that did fail a bit. Um, Then there are ones that I understand a little bit less, Minamino felt like it could have been a small move, hasn't really worked out, but Malangsa on loan just feels like... um, Especially for Monaco and stuff, I didn't get that move. I don't particularly rate Malongside so has to be said. Um, so maybe that's why I'm down on it. Maybe, you know, Paul Mitchell sees something that I don't. But but yeah, the the none of their signings really I don't feel that like that click with any of them that I think Monaco is a weird club in general with their recruitment. They they're very like you know, shotgun, scatter shot, see what see what sticks, right? And that they have been for too many years. I've been very critical of it i don't like clubs that act in that way even if it does kind of work at times but they do tend to get big players out of that and i don't see from this current crop a huge like deal coming through i mean that there's some smart ones on cheap deals again like ishmael jacobs i think jacobs is a big one like i i like him as a player he's obviously not their first choice but he came for 6.5 so he's also found good value but yeah we'll see we'll see I i think if i had to put a thing on it i i think he's had a he's kind of like kept the the ship going without really changing the trajectory too much with their recruitment
1: yeah i think it'll be interesting to see where his uh, next step will be i think he's he's definitely one of those you know hotly chased after sporting directors because of you know obviously his profile and his career as a whole up to this point so i think that's everything that we needed to discuss with the weekly recap let's uh, jump into toulouse next okay so let's talk about toulouse alex you know as a club they're fairly young youngish i mean they founded in 1970 so not as uh, i'd say storied of a club in france but still a significant region an important region in france they've never won liga never won coupe de france but they have won the league the twice in their history so far most recently getting relegated to uh, the league 1 in 1920 which we'll discuss in due course i think uh, one of their most significant or most striking achievements for me when i was looking through their history is beating uh, diego maradona's napoli in uh, the uefa cup as it was known back then uh, in 1986 87 but to talk about their more recent history as a as a league on club since coming in uh, I, th- I believe they had a spell of good, a good 13-14 seasons, or more than that possibly.
0: Yeah, I think, I think 17. We ended 17, that sounds about right. Yeah, So the...
1: 17 seasons where they were a fixture in Liga, having a lot of uh, notable names. I think some popular names that people, our listeners might have heard of, André-Pierre Jignac, one of them. Benyeda of course, we've discussed him previously. Uh, another one more recently, you know, that the stats nerds really liked was Ibrahim Shangaré. Um uh, so, <laughs> shout out uh, Alex Stewart. Yeah, of course Alex <laughs> Stewart, uh friend of the pod. Uh Ibrahim Shangare was another one of those people. Uh Man United fans will know Fabian Barthez So they have I, I don't I don't think you can say that they have a lot of history um in terms of in comparison with other League on clubs, but they do have their own sort of they do have their own place in League on uh, League on sort of hierarchy, don't they?
0: Yeah, I mean I think even that's a bit like underplaying them. I think they're quite a big club in maybe the recent history of of Ligue One French football. Right? It was quite a it was quite a significant thing when they got relegated. Really especially they had spent seventeen consecutive seasons yep. in the top, and they have produced a lot of players, whether from their academy or bought young. I mean, we also can speak about Kapoue, Musa Sissoko, Aurier, um A lot of big players. I think they have a strong tradition, and as you spoke about. From a very significant region in france with a with a strong culture and an idea of how they how they want their club to be run, so I think yeah they are quite a big club and and especially i mean maybe no like, so i think yeah are, i would say they're quite a big club within yeah French football
1: definitely, and i think uh in terms of that decline it's it's had it's sort of been the culmination um uh, of sort of slow decline over a few years, which resulted of course in their in their relegation in the 1920 season, which was cut short by COVID, but in that season they only won three games, which I think is a is a really sort of shocking return for for some for a group of fans and for a community that really takes pride in the way they want their football club to be, you know, playing and the way they want their um, the, the way they want their city to be represented. So I think that was a really low point. But after that, after that relegation, they were really reformed thanks to Redbird Capital, who stepped in uh, in that summer, acquiring an 85% stake in the club. And, of course, appointing Damien Comoli, who a very, very popular name, I think, in the world of sporting directors. He's worked previously at Arsenal, Spurs, and also Liverpool, so quite well-known in Premier League circles. And within,
0: within Ligue 1, I think he had his first big director of football was at Saint-Étienne, right, for one season. That he did, came yeah. To them. yeah. Yeah, where they'd just been promoted and then he got them sixth place. And that was, that was the season before he went to Spurs, mm. having left England in the first place as a scout of Arsenal.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, Alex, I'll ask you this. What, what do you think of, you know, how the early influence of, of Redbird and Damian Kamoli really helped to sort of reinvigorate re the club in some ways and sort of reform and bring the community and the fans all, all together? How do you think all of that changed when they came in?
0: I have to give credit to the Training Ground Guru uh, podcast for an interview that they did with Damien Um And I'd highly recommend going to listen to that. I think Damien Komoli speaks really well about his career in general and about what he's doing at Toulouse. Um, more so than we'll try get into, we would just be par- parroting what they do, right? But it was very interesting to hear sort of Redbird had been wanting to buy a club for a while, um, a football club. And I had been wanting Damien Komoli to kind of you know, um, head up whatever club they ended up buying. Um they ended up choosing to lose for a number of reasons in terms of the young sort of culture around the club, especially it's a I think it's the second biggest sort of student region in mm, France. Yep. I assume behind Paris. Um then, also, just in terms of the owner, they still wanted, they didn't want to buy a club outright. They did want the old owner to have some sort of role in the club, which is also what suited to lose. There were a number of different things good academy, good structures, good stadium um, that all sort of added together that made to lose the ideal sort of club to buy, which is what they did. And Damien Komoli came in, and I think he did very well in terms of um, obviously he's had a long history of what he speaks about in the pod as well of like successes and failures and learning from his failures. So he came in what he said, very humble, never having to have been a director of football where you have to help a club get promoted again. So the first thing that he kind of focused on was like the cultural revolution of the club, understanding what the people in the region, the people, the fans thought about the club, how they identified with the club. And what came through that is that they did really believe I think as many football clubs tend to, is that their team plays attacking football, mm. right? So I think we always hear that. You never hear a, a fan base saying, oh yeah, I want our, our team to play this like stodgy football. Sometimes they do more like aggressive or working class sure. football, I put in things. But yeah, they wanted an attractive style of football, which um, Komoli as a Wenger man, he says himself, <laughs> right? Very much identified with his own idea of how the club should be. So that starting point was the playing style, but then also understanding how do we get fans back to the stadium what do they want to eat at the stadium how do they want to be treated how linked to the club do they want to be in certain ways um just lots of small things and i think one of the things that does stand through come through quite well is even during this decline that as you said ninat it didn't happen just in 1920 that they suddenly only had three wins all season it was it was a decline over a number of years maybe you'd say five or so years before that where they'd kind of been flirting with relegation and they kind of become like the idea of the club was to lose in English (laughs) rather than just to lose and they would lose. Right. Um, uh, but what had still been strong is the academy had continued to be very, very good, um, and their development of young players. So what Komoli actually did coming in is that he wanted the team to play like the youth teams were playing rather than having the youth teams emulate the first teams. That was, that was a big part of the cultural revolution. Um, getting all the staff on side, realigning the club in that way, which I think the podcast itself gets into really well. And then I think the other side, which is obviously your your side of football, was the stats revolution that that Redbird came in, right? With this focus on data-driven decision-making, top to bottom, having key performance indicators being very important about how they measure in a very like analytical, statistical way, but also with regards to their recruitment, which we do see a lot, right? In terms of, to lose recruit from everywhere and anywhere, like, we can speak, we're going to speak about Gabriel Suazo soon. Like, he's come now at 25, having spent his whole career in Chile. They bought a guy called Hemalic in um in Germany. Where did he come from again? I think
1: he came from the Polish League. Uh, yeah, from the Polish League, from the extra class of where he from was the, the top scorer at the time. And at the time of recording, he is still... Uh, top for goals <laughs> per 90 uh, 0.64 which feels quite uh, quite mad but yeah it's just you speak to the variety of their recruitment Alex I think the uh, the stats revolution really reflects in that sense but even away from the players you see the decision to to bring in Philippe Montagnier as their manager was also driven by data they really uh, nailed down KPIs of how they wanted their playing style to be and they found Montagnier to be the perfect match for that which I thought was quite quite interesting And so they are; they don't shy away from the fact that they are a very sort of data-driven club, uh, supported, of course, uh, as we learned from the Training Ground Guru podcast, supported by the uh, extensive resources at Zealous Analytics. And just, you know, all of their decisions at the club are really informed by data in terms of where they want to improve and where they see themselves as a club and the kind of players that they want to bring in. So I think Hamulic was... Uh, was a really good example of that. And then bringing in other players like, you know, Stein Spearings, Vranco, then Van den Bormen. In their
0: first season, right? And he came from Bulgaria. Exactly, I think. exactly. From what? Yeah. So there's,
1: the variety is huge. And I think, I mean, I counted this the other day. I believe they have about 19 nationalities in their squad, which I think just speaks to the variety of their recruitment, doesn't it? And
0: even more impressive considering they have about 10 Dutchmen in their squad. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> exactly exactly so that makes it h- how they managed to find 19 other guys right um but yeah i think you see that from their first season in legal like the signings that they made we spoke about Spearing's coming from the club's name was levski sofia in bulgaria um bronco came in from i think the second division the graf in the yeah. yeah and i think we saw that, that stats approach really informing their recruitment right from the beginning right not something that sort of blended in over times. I mean, we spoke about Spearings. He came from Levski, Sofia in Bulgaria right at the beginning, um in January 2020 actually. Um, but then also guys like Branko came from the Ister Divisi. Um and then later, obviously guys like Rataula last season. Um he came from a Slovakian side actually, Slovan Bratislava, after spending a lot of his career in Brazil. Um then we can speak about De Jachira, who we're all going to get into all of these names, Nikolaisen, right? Um, a lot of guys who've also spent all of their careers in um, the Scandinavian leagues. I think that's another interesting thing about their recruitment is that they're not really afraid to, to buy older players that have actually spent all of their time in one league, in a smaller league, right? Um, but I will say, though, for their first season back, what really did come through again was the academy and the importance of the academy in that first season. They ended up coming third, two points short um of second place, Clement Foot. Um where Mohamed Bayo had that um that impressive, you know, top season a favorite of Ninad's. That's why I bring him <laughs> up. Uh, <laughs> but then but yeah, ultimately they lost out in the playoff. So then they came back stronger. But even in that season we can speak about Manu Kone. Now, of course, at Gladbach. Um, Gladbach. I mean, Adli, now at Leverkusen. Um, Bafoda Diakite, who's just moved to Lille recently. Yannis Antiste, who moved, to thanks to Spezia at the end of that season, at the 2021 season. Anthony Roald, who is still at the club. All of these guys coming through the academy and having a, a big impact in that season. And yeah, just speaking to previous names, I think we kind of touched on, but like Lafont and Todibo, who we spoke about earlier in this pod both from that academy and then guys like Issa Diop, Premier League fans will know. Um, and then also still at the club alongside with Ralt, Farah Musa Diara. So they have a very strong academy, which even with these revolutions in the culture and the organization and the stats-led um, sort of recruitment and information processes, the academy still been a very important part of what they do.
1: Definitely, and I think the 21-22 season is where we, I think, we saw the full force of the uh, recruitment and like all of it coming into coming into effect is where they had, I think, four players with 10 plus goals and assists, which is quite wild if you think about it. I think it's the first time that's happened um, in in Ligue 1 since Opta started collecting data. So all of Van den Berman, Raice Healy, Rafael Ratao, and Ado Onaivu, all of them scoring. 10-plus uh, ten, ten goals and uh, assists uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of league-down season, which is quite interesting and quite impressive. And it's just another reflection on their recruitment because all of these players coming from different leagues, Reese Healy coming from England, from MK Dons, Vanden Berman coming from the S-Divisor, like you already mentioned, Rathau Onaivu also coming from different leagues. So it's just all coming together to make the perfect uh, perfect re- recipe, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and just to even speak to that, I mean, that that was a very record-breaking season, right? I think they had 82 goals, which is the most scored in league during history. Um, the record-breaking assists. so Bronken van der Bowman had 33 goals and assists in the league that season. I think he did have about seven penalties, though, mm. or five penalties, I'd say. Um, but he had 21 assists, which is crazy. Also record-breaking. Ended the season with six players in the team of the season. So, you know, after just missing out on 21 22 and in 2021, they actually came back a lot stronger despite losing big names like Manu Kone and Amin Adli, who had been huge parts of what the team had achieved the previous season.
1: Definitely. And I think one. now that we've talked about what their past was like, Alex, let's talk about what they're looking like now that they're in Liga. And let's just go through their starting 11 and what they look like. So let's talk about what a Philippe Montani eleven generally looks like. Listeners, I hope that you can visualize the team with us as we go through it position by position. But on paper, they generally look 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 in terms of their shape, depending on how you want to look at it. We'll start with the goalkeeper, 30-year-old Frenchman Maxime Dupé, who joined them after their relegation at the end of the nineteen twenty season. After you know years of being second choice at uh, at FC Nantes, which is where, incidentally, Alban Lafont uh, joined currently. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> so Maxime Dupay has since taken over from Lafont's duties as to lose his number one. So he's their goalkeeper, comfortable with the ball at his feet, nicely plays nice little short passes with uh, with the center backs. But before touching on the center backs, we'll talk about the full backs. Uh, normally, the first choice being Gabriel Suazo on the left and Mikhail Dessler on the right. Suazo is this uh, 25-year-old Chilean. Like Alex mentioned, he's someone who's spent his all of his career in the Chilean top flight at Colo Colo, uh, replacing Isiaga Silia, who men, went to Montpellier, the Guinean international, 29-year-old. So Suazo is sort of the more recent addition, I'd say, to this uh, starting 11. On the other side, you have Mikhail Dessler, who joined at the beginning of uh, of last season? He's 28 years old. He spent the most of his career in Scandinavia, like most of uh, Toulouse's recruitment uh, in recent seasons. So he's been a big part of that Scandinavian push into the team. So he's he's I'd say a big part of how their attack has upgraded over the past couple of seasons, offering a lot more going forward. Which you see less so less so from him uh, in this season because he's the more reserved player of the two often receiving passes rather than the one forcing those passes but he's you know competent in his own right talking about the center backs you have a pairing of rasmus nikolaisen and anthony roald nikolaisen joining from fc Michelon. again another second choice ish player who spent years on the books of of Michelon, never really breaking through into the side but has since established himself as a stalwart of toulouse's defense at the back you know he is an ever-present alongside Roult, who's the younger of the two. Roult is some 21 years old. Came through France's uh, sorry Toulouse's academy, uh, getting his first taste of senior football in their relegation season uh, back in Ligue 2. But has since uh, become like a sort of a, uh, another sort of pillar of their backline, and he's become more and more important as the, as the as you know as as the season has gone on. But stylistically, Alex, I think both of them are quite similar and like quite important for what they provide and what they bring to the side in terms of their stuff in possession, aren't they?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um when we talk about that whole attacking philosophy, I think you really see from the center backs that how important that is in terms of how the team wants to play. Especially we're gonna get into about a little bit about their possession approach later. Or lack thereof, I guess. <laughs> um, and it's really important what Nicolaisen and Rod can do in terms of being able to be comfortable on the ball, passing through lines of pressure, um, particularly along the ground rather than just hoofing it. Right. All of that really comes into the reason that they do play in every game, um, and are the stalwarts at the back for to lose more so even than what they do defensively. And that's not to say they're bad defenders at all. But it is really that importance of that passing game and that ability to kind of dictate play from deep that that makes them so important.
1: Perfect. Uh, do you want to take us through the midfield, Alex? Uh, I know we discussed it's, it's either a midfield uh, two or a three, but uh, how do you see it?
0: Uh, I'd love to. So yeah, it's either a pivot or a double pivot, depending. I see it a bit more as a pivot. Um, either way, Spearings is the number six in that team. Stay in Spearings. 27-year-old Dutchman. He's had a career kind of bouncing between the Eredivisie and the Ere Divisie. then like we said earlier went to Levski Sofia in Bulgaria and from there within within a year he was joined he joined Toulouse and yeah he's been their main guy at the back. I think he's played every game for them as well. A lot less rotation in this Toulouse squad Toulouse team than we saw from a couple of weeks back when we did the Marseille episode. Um but yeah, he's their guy there. I think what he's really good at is also just those long sort of passing. Um, that's sort of his bag, right? We get forward into the main man, who's either, you know, the left sentiment in the pivot, or as I would say, a little bit of, like the interior for, for the forward is Bronco den Bowman, who the whole football world pretty much knows, knows by now. Um, not least because he is running down his contract and will probably be leaving to lose at the end of the season. But like I said, he is their main man. Um, he's the guy they're always looking to get on the ball he does love to receive it deep um, but sometimes also a little bit higher up he is mainly an attacking threat I would say and what makes him such a good attacking threat is just that ability his passing ability is magical to be honest, it's incredibly incredibly good whether it's switches or squeezing sort of balls through the corridors um, he is their main guy he tries to make things happen then either further forward or kind of, I would say, like the advanced eight sort of slash 10 in that right sentiment role or right interior role. You have Dejahira, who arrived in 2021, their first season when they got relegated after spending his entire career um, in his native Belgium. And where Bronco is known for what he does on the ball. I would say that Deje Gehara is really about what he offers off the ball, right? His off-ball movements, a much bigger part of his game than the other two midfielders. He's still very t- tidy technically, competent technically, but it's just those moving through the pockets, pulling out wide, holding the width. That's really a big part of his game and what and what he adds to the midfield and to the side in general.
1: Alex, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I feel like the stats nerd in me would never forgive myself if I don't bring out this point about uh, Ranko the fact that he had 21 assists in Ligue 1 last season, which is the highest tally in a single campaign in the top five European leagues and their second divisions ever since Opta started collecting this data in 2014. Now, this record was previously held by Leo Messi and Thomas Muller, so he is in really, really <laughs> high company. Uh, so yeah, just a fantastic player, and I thought yeah, worth mentioning that he's had this amazing record. Damn!
0: So you're telling me Messi's not even the best creator in in Oh.
1: Doesn't seem like it. <laughs>
0: it goes it goes shirky, Bronco, Messi in my opinion. Hey hey but, hey! No 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 need what? for
1: personal agendas on this board. Let's <laughs> stick to Toulouse. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so let's move on to um, the wingers. We had a bit of a choice on the left because. Two players have played a lot of minutes, um, but we went for Rafael Ratal, 27-year-old Brazilian, who actually, another one who joined from a weird league, joined from Slo- Slovan Bratislava in Slovakia. He's had a bit of a journeyman career. Less prolific this season, but he was very important, his output last season. But even now, still offers crazy work rates, still offering just less than a goal or an assist a game, or per 90. Um, he's quite an invaluable profile for the side. I think he really adds to that intensity that you want them to play with. And especially versus the bigger sides, he he adds he, he adds a lot um, from a defensive and and attacking uh, perspective. On the other side, maybe their marquee signing for, of the season, right, um, is Zakaria Bukla, super talented winger who really, for one reason or another, never managed to make his name in the Netherlands where he came from, either PSV or AZ Alkmaar, always never. You know, never cracked 900 league minutes in a season, which is 10 league 90s. Um, but he's finally been unleashed um, this season as their new... You know, their number one wide forward, I would say. He's the main transition outlet for the side. He's very good at being able to manufacture shots. Um, once put in good positions. Whether Toulouse put him in, in enough good positions, like, I'll save that for later in the squad. In, in I'll save that for later in the pod. But yeah, we were speaking about that choice on the left. The other guy Varej uh, Shaibi, 20-year-old Algerian. Um, he's also appeared all over the place, but yeah, he was the other guy we could have chosen for the left, and we'll speak about him a bit later. And then lastly, up front is their bagsman, just your classic bagsman type of player, is taste Delinga, Um he has a knack for getting on, on the end of chances. And he joined this season after a crazy campaign with Excelsior in the UFC Divisie. Last year, 32 goals and 8 assists in the league. Um, And he's kind of carried that form. I don't think he was expecting to be their first choice striker this season. But Rhys Healy's injury kind of made it, you know, promoted him quicker than than he'd have expected. But he has returned um, that that opportunity with, I think, 10 10 or so goals so far in the league this season.
1: Yeah, he has. And I think, yeah, like you said, Dalenga really sort of... uh, Puts the final touch on all of the attacking moves, and really, I think without him, they don't really have another player like him just yet. They've brought in Hamolich, of course. We'll see, we'll see if he can provide those similar sort of qualities. Uh, but I think for that, uh, but I think with that, we've sort of visualized how the team looks, uh, how a typical Philippe Montani eleven looks. Uh, let's get into the tactics in possession and out of possession after a short break. And we're back from the break. Uh, let's get into Toulouse's tactics, Alex. And like, I think it's best we start chronologically as we uh, always do. Start with in possession and from in the very first phase, talking from goal kicks, what do they look like? They almost always, you know, like I mentioned earlier, they play short to centre-backs from Dupay. It's generally a flyback four. They, they stay quite deep and so uh, quite close to each other and staying in those deeper areas the centre backs i think nikolaisen and um, and roald of course they're important in passing out of the back playing those penetrative passes along the ground or switching out wide like you mentioned in terms of their on ball qualities neither of them particularly carrying per se but i will say there is some slight difference where you see nikolaisen carry a lot more where i think he has the space to do so uh, which uh, which he does which he does quite well out of the two
0: do you think he does that more because sometimes Branko positions himself higher? Like Branko is quite a static player in terms of waiting to receive, but does position himself higher, with Spearings is nominally the right sentiment, more more central than that. Do you think that's maybe a reason why Nikolaisen carries a bit more than Roald does as the right centre-back?
1: Yeah, possibly. I think, I mean, definitely from the games that we've seen, I feel like Spearings does prefer to pre- receive on that right side of the of the of the back two mm-hmm. he definitely has a preference on that side and of course with their deep positioning they do sort of invite pressure from from the opposition in doing so opening that space for Nikolaison on the other side to carry a little bit and then play to play to the fullback or you know uh, and allow those attacking combinations to happen in, in wide areas So we don't see as much passing at the back. Generally, they look to distribute, like I said, vertically through the fullbacks or go longer to the flanks and allowing the progression to happen through the wide channels. But, you know, when you see the centre-backs, they do try to invite the press from the opposition. And this is where you see Spearings collecting the ball in front of the defence and then trying to pass around that press by receiving the ball in in those tight situations in in the press where he is sometimes good sometimes not so good but you know when he really yeah. does apply himself i think he can be an effective receiver in 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 his own third and then distributing the wall, ball wide immediately so i think that about covers everything that happens for Toulouse in the first phase alex do you want to talk us through what happens in the second phase and how they sort of navigate into the into the final third
0: yeah absolutely uh, so one of the key things i think is once the ball progresses past that first line of press uh, which you kind of call into the second phase which is just moving into the final third right that tends to activate the forward movement from the fullbacks provided one of them isn't receiving themselves which does sometimes happen um and when this happens as you were speaking earlier when we were just covering the team in general Swazo is the one who moves forward more so than Desler. both very attacking fullbacks but just for the sake of balance, Desler holds his position a little bit more. Actually, even inverts a little bit, which we'll get to, I guess later when we're talking about the their second phase dynamics, right? Um, so tends to be moving it into the central corridors, into into that past the first line of the press. Guys who will be receiving, of course, it'll be spearing's often, but um, Bronco often receives, and when he gets the ball, he's gonna try make something happen immediately. But also guys like Deja will be a little bit higher dropping in to receive. Um, if he hasn't dropped in deep already, depends on the opposition, of course. Um, but whoever is receiving there, the idea is then to kind of move it through one side. So get it wide into one flank or move it down one of the, the right or the left sort of inside channels. Um, and it's sort of a it's a buzzword, I guess, that has kind of gone through like the football world recently. Is this relational play. But I can't help but see it when we watch them. There is this relational aspect to how they play, especially with how narrow they get to one side. How players come near sided to the ball. Um, so let's say it's moving. Let's say it's moving um, through Bronco, as it often is. That that's their main guy. That's who they're trying to get the ball to. He likes to kind of drop deep to receive. He likes to receive kind of statically and then make things happen. Uh, but what will happen is, let's say as he's moving forward. Um, spearings will actually come near-sided behind to be support behind him, but then also the far-sided interior. So Dejahira in the sense will come very narrow as well. And it creates this very like sort of narrow channel through which they, they're vacated the right side and they're moving the ball forward. And then chance creation or getting into the final third depends on manufacturing opportunity from close combinations before trying to find someone in behind. So it would be maybe Rattal. Um, who is often holding the width or maybe Swaz or even making a seam run himself, kind of depends. What I'd also point out is there's this asymmetry in the interiors between Branco and Dejahira, which really does change the dynamics um, getting into the final third between the two. So as we've spoken about, Branco likes to get on the ball deeper, dropping into that double pivot more regularly. Sometimes Dejahira drops into the pivot, uh, into a double pivot, but it's far more Bronco, And then he plays through that left-center corridor half space if you want to call it um takes charge plays aggressive balls forward whereas Dejahera he's happy to receive deeper but likes to kind of rather than receiving or being situated deep statically he drops in as the ball's coming forward he likes to kind of he likes that close combination play and moving into areas to receive again regularly moves wide in the second phase Branco does that far less often and he, you know, Dejajera takes charge but in his own more facilitative, less on the ball way, and this asymmetry kind of changes the dynamics with the wingers and the fullbacks. For example, Dejajera's willingness to be the guy holding the width means that you'll often get a Bukla, um, a Buklal sitting in the half space in the seam, um, and Desla even becoming inverting, whereas you will never really see that with Bronco on this other side. He likes to sit where he is and Suazo and Rital or Shaibi, depending. They have sort of a different dynamic in terms of how they overlap and underlap between the two of them, right? So, yeah, creates a lot of different sorts of relations in terms of how they move forward. But one of the key things is when they do pick a side, everyone kind of comes to that side. And what I would say is they look to get the ball forward, right? There isn't this sort of resetting thing, and that's what we were speaking about with the centre-backs earlier in terms of the job that they have to do not that they even pass the ball much between the two of them but they're kind of they're like pin the back you don't really get like Spearings offering himself as this reliever and then passing it to the other side and you know creating the sort of you of control that you'll see in most positional systems like Arsenal and City are are huge examples of it right you don't really get that with um, Toulouse once they get going they're looking to keep going forward and Part of that is because they come so narrow, that obviously congests the pitch. That allows their opposition to congest the pitch. Um, you know, they kind of buy in, well, allow themselves to get into that situation. They can't really just build out of it and, and control and slow down play. So they do move. Once they start to move through the first phase, they're trying to move into the final third.
1: Yeah, and I think that that willingness to just keep the ball going forward and not really resetting is like really evident. in when you look at their sequence time which is a metric available uh, thanks to Opta. So sequence time measures uh, the amount of time spent by a team in possession in in a sequence. So their sequence time currently for this season is 8.94 seconds, which is fairly low for a team that you know has all of these players who are clearly technically capable, but not they're not really asked to do too much in possession in the final third, all of that resetting you're talking about. So I think that just further underlines how much they just want to get the ball forward, and they don't really necessarily want to sustain possession in that uh, in that area, don't they?
0: And no, absolutely. I think the one thing that they do try to do when they, you know, obviously move from one side to the other is just switches. And I think I would say, we were speaking about this before, but they're one of the highest switching sides in the league, right? But it's, you know, from deeper areas, you'll get Spearings or Bowman Both have a very good switch pass, long pass in them. Um and they're very aggressive with it, but then even once you're passing the half line, the halfway line, Shaibi is another person who can be receiving there and then playing a ball across to often to Tesla, so they have a lot of. Yeah, in that moving forward, they their their ability to kind of once they're getting pinned in is just to switch the ball to the other side.
1: Definitely, and uh, just to uh, cap off that point you made about the switches, Toulouse are currently second for switches in, in Liga. So they're just behind Ajaxio, which I think when you look at how they perform on the pitch, switches are a big part of their style of play. But just to cap off this entire section, Alex, what do you, what do we sort of think of their general ideas in possession? What do you make of what Montaigne is trying to do so far?
0: So for me, I think what is clear is that the ideas are attacking football, right? They really do go for it. There, There's less of a... They're not held back by like concerns over safety. And I think one of the things that did come through in the pod um, that we were listening, that I listened, <clears throat> and I think one of the things that did come through in the Training Gr- Ground Guru podcast, where he spoke about one of the KPIs that they really needed to improve going from 18th to 8th um, in the league at the time, was their rest defense. It was basically what he was speaking about and how poorly that rest defense operated. And obviously some adjustments were made because he said they did manage, through focusing on that KPI, key performance indicator, as he calls it. He uses a lot of like Harvard business language talk, right? Um, but he I, he identified that. I think I can totally see why that was such an issue for them. And it still kind of is. Because they go so narrow, once they lose the ball, they are very vulnerable. And you can move the ball quite easily through them. There's not this sort of positional security um, defensively, but it becomes, it comes from the fact that they don't have this sort of positional system that allows them, when they're in possession, to sometimes slow dip things down. And for me, at least in terms of how I see this team developing, I think that is something, as admirable as that attacking sort of style is, it often leads them running into corridors or attacks petering out. I think what we're going to speak about getting into the final thirds often because they can't slow down the attack and allow... Allow numbers to catch up and support you the attack kind of peters out at the end, and there's like two two guys left you know at the end of the string of the attack, trying to like finish it off rather than what you see in like positional systems and obviously Arsenal's having a great season, but because of that sort of consolidated control, you can then get into a position where your rest defense or your vigilance block what what is sometimes called those back guys, are in a good position to allow like a sixth man to commit forward. Whereas lose. they even struggled to commit a full five going forward because, because of that combination play, moving through like one corridor um, without ever having the slowing down, passing it back to the six, maybe the six passes back to the centre-backs. I would be interested to see numbers be- in terms of passes between Nicolaisen and um, Roald compared to other centre-backs in the league. It does not feel that they pass to each other nearly as much as other t- attacking um teams right so while i'd call them attacking team i wouldn't call them a possession dominant team and i think that is maybe something that will hold them back making that next step having said that i do think it's exciting i love seeing that sort of relational aspect socio-effect of play in terms especially when guys i love intelligent off-ball movers and i think someone like deji hero on the right side offers a lot of connective play there um so that, that those would be my issues with them in possession what do you, you have any thoughts to add there?
1: No, I think you've basically covered everything. Uh, I think let's quickly touch on the final third and what happens there. We've already spoken about how the relational aspect is really strong in uh, in how they attack teams and how they approach uh, their sort of uh, how they approach their attacking ideas in wide areas, and also that is also in evident in in and around the penalty area where you see someone like Ranko attacking the box, but also holding, a, a sort of pinning the back line and then trying to combine in sort of uh, in these little triangles that they try to form with the fullback and the wide forward uh, interchanging around the penalty area. And then I think one, one of those goals that they scored against Montpellier was, was a very good example of that, where you see Branco starting the move, going into the box and then waiting for Shaibi and uh, Diarra, I believe, them both combining on the left. And then Shaibi cutting inside, and then just latching onto a little, just a deft pass from Ranko and then Shaibi just blasting it into the right top corner. Oh, that
0: one, oh, what a goal! It was, it was a beautiful
1: Oof. finish. But yeah, I think those <laughs> that that, that relational aspect again is is quite evident, and we've already spoken about you know their attack. I think it suffers a little bit because of that lack of uh, resetting that uh, that doesn't happen. Or just control. Just control exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's no real sort of a sustainable approach or at least it's not been evident to us that they really want to sustain possession in the final third. Once they get the ball there, they just want to either cross it to da, to Dalinga or to get a shot away. Uh, in some ways, similar to runs but I feel like runs do a better job of uh, timing those attacks and being able to finish mm-hmm. finish off things uh, in a more efficient way. And that, come, yep.
0: that comes from runs's spacing, I would say. Yep. The spacing in terms of their attack means that they're able to defend immediately, there's less need for the sort of relational combinations. They're just looking for quick progression to certain players, right? Um the one person I do want to speak about in the final third is obviously Delingo. I think in one sense he has really good intuitive movement, a reaction and understanding of how things are gonna happen, right? So he gets onto the end of a lot of a lot of sort of goals and a lot of shots. Um where it's just really good instinct. But at the other aspect is that he doesn't, to me, offer too much besides his goal scoring, but besides getting in the, on the end of things. And I wonder how much, even within this relational system, right, like how much is that limiting what they can do? Because he doesn't then offer a reference point that they can pass to him, and he can change it to the opposite side, right? He doesn't offer that ability for them to to stop themselves being boxed in on one side which they kind of willingly do allow themselves to do but having sort of a player who can break that press would help a lot and he doesn't offer that he's just there to get in the box to get the shots
1: off definitely yeah I think their attack does suffer a little bit because of that but you also can't really say I think "suffers" is a big word but he definitely is is a big part of their, what they do well in possession uh, in the final third but also what they don't do if that makes sense. Pros and, and cons. Pros and exactly, cards. exactly. So a little bit of both. Let's quickly move on to the out-of-possession uh, side of things, Alex. So but as we were discussing, as me and Alex were discussing the um, approach, I think we both came to the conclusion that they are a disorganized, <laughs> disorganized mid-block. <laughs> uh, so their general shape is, is what we would call a disorganized mid-block because I feel like they want to be aggressive, but I feel like the aggression is very focused in terms of... Going down the flanks, that is where they like to the funnel the ball the most, and you don't see a lot of aggression happening in central areas with Spearings and Van der Berman. You see a lot of a uh, lot of activity happening in wide areas. At least that was evident from the games we watched, uh, you know, against Angers and against Montpellier, and against Marseille. That sort of approach changed a little bit because of uh, Marseille's own threat.
0: Yeah, the the Marseille game was actually an interesting one, right? Because we did see in a lot of the games, especially against sort of a level or weaker teams they do go for this mid block that i don't really like it's to force the team onto either side which is fine they just do it kind of badly which i think we'll speak about later but then versus marseille in the second game i think it was three two loss in the end um there they were far more active a little bit higher but also now pressed onto one flank or the other and i think It makes sense, right? We've spoken about Marseille last episode, how much they like to kind of work the width and then use one side or the other. Then obviously you don't want to just allow them into those wide areas where they're so dangerous. You want to kind of control them onto one wide area and focus there. Um, So it makes sense why they change. But what really stood out to me is they're so much better when they're a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more focused on pushing onto one side that it doesn't really make sense to me why so often they are doing this weird, like, central mid-block that I think the key problems there, maybe we, we're jumping a little bit ahead because I do want to speak about the counter press, but the key problems there is that in terms of personnel, like, the access for their opposition team, the access to good players and good positions in the wide areas is so easy and they react so late that... Yeah, it almost just seems like they're basically allowing themselves to... First of all, they don't protect good areas. And then second of all, their reaction after that is so messy. That's what we call about disorganized. That it, it just makes them easy to to be broken through again, right?
1: Definitely, yeah. I think speaking just about the counterpress, you know, that's... I think the, the counterpress consists of two aspects largely. You know, a poor rest defense. We've talked about the rest defense a little bit earlier. But just because of their... Uh, because of how poorly organized they are uh, the centre-backs are often left exposed so Nikolaisen and Roth often have to do a lot of backtracking and they're both caught out uh, because of the lack of protection that you get from the full-backs and then Spearings as such we've seen him his application has been hit and miss you often see him just being <laughs> completely separated from uh, from games and sometimes he's switched on and when is switched on he can be quite good but you don't see him do that as often and then Just a a tendency to overcommit in duels. You see that they are really, really poor at duels. And we saw this one start that really sort of, I think really bolds bolds and underlines the the point is that Toulouse have the lowest success percentage in terms of tackling dribblers. So they often do engage dribblers. They engage more than anyone in in Liga. So 20.9 challenges they engage per 90. But the success rate of that is just 43.5% which is lesser than someone like Clermont-Foot, Brest, Twa, all of these teams that are battling relegation, but Toulouse are mid-table and doing so poorly in terms of dealing with those duels. So I feel like that's something that they, that's that's a error in their methods that can really be, be improved.
0: Yeah, so I just want to repeat that. It's kind of crazy to me that the team that is most aggressively just trying to engage in these 1v1 deals all the time is actually just by far the worst. I think the second worst is on Foot with 46%. Um And just to paint a picture, like you really see this every game. Uh, I don't even know which, it, they all meld, like merge together into one sort of image that I'll have right where they've lost the ball up now higher. Now, obviously they're a bit narrow. So everyone's all over the place. They're trying to get back. Also what I'll say is they're often most vulnerable after their corners they find themselves most, most vulnerable, interestingly, right? For different reasons. But either way, they've conceded high now. What you'll often have is one of the centre-backs because he has no protection in front of him. And this is because Spearings... I Nenad mean, knows by now, I'm not, I'm maybe not the biggest Spearings fan in terms of his <laughs> his zonal responsibilities. He needs to kind of look over and like adjust to that. I think I Nenad's mean, kind of been defending him because I've gone in quite hard on him at times. He does have a good pass in him. Um you've heard in another's whole pod kind of being like, well Spearings when he's concentrating does this and this and this. The problem is that guy is never concentrating. But anyways, <laughs> so he's not protecting space, so then you'll get the center backs completely exposed. And as good as Anthony Roth is someone else, I'm a I'm a big fan of him, but As good as he is as a defender on the retreat, and I think he's really good, especially like making decisions in the box, especially under pressure. And we've spoken about how good both him and Nikolaisen are in possession and under pressure, making the right choice every time. Um, In these positions where he needs to be like a front-footed defender, you'll just often see him like running up and like trying to tackle this guy, like running from like however many yards, right? And then just easily getting dribbled. And now he's being sent for a hot dog. And then you've got Nikolaisen and, and Desler, two guys who love going to the ground <laughs> for no reason in the case of Desler, And it's it's just an absolute mare. I would love to see some numbers on how often they lose possession in the final third, in the opposition's third, and then how quickly that just ends up in a shot inside their third, because it, it just feels like this is happening every game. Um, I would say Spierings doesn't get dribbled too much because he's never in a position to get dribbled. Um, But as for the other sort of players in those positions, I don't know. I think Bronco isn't particularly good in those positions. Dejahiro is maybe the best out of those, but also not that great. And then Nikolaj Sin and, and Rolt aren't great front-footed defenders or centre-backs, right?
1: Yeah, I think... Sorry, that was a bit of a <laughs> run,
0: but I... I needed to get that out of my system.
1: No, completely understandable. Uh, just to, just to I think, figure out a, a, a start or a, another start to sort of um, underline what you just spoke about there, Alex. I, I was just looking at uh, shot creating actions conceded by teams. And when you look at successful take-ons that have led to a shot, Toulouse are at the top of that. So Toulouse have conceded 49 take-ons that have directly led to a shot against them, which is by far the most in the league. Uh, Clermont 48, so just behind them. But again, another, another little t- stat that just underlines that they're just not there in terms of their 1v1 duels and their defence suffers as a whole because of that. Um, but what I will say though, what I will say is this, that I watched their most uh, recent game against Leo, and it did seem like they are on the mend a little bit, at least in terms of their counter-press because I feel like they position themselves quite aggressively uh, and doing so allowing them to sort of take advantage of any miscalculations from the opposition, uh, which, which is what happened against, against Lille. I think in the first 10-15 minutes, they were able to get in behind two or three times just because of capitalizing on a loose touch or a loose pass from, from the centre-backs and really just shutting off any central access because of how highly positioned they were, just forcing the ball wide and then asking their full-backs to take care of uh, the, the dangerous attackers that, that legal have, which they did quite well, to be fair. Um, and so, yeah, I think in that sense, they are improving. But as a whole, right now, we can say that that, that counter press and that that aspect of their play out of possession is still not there just yet.
0: Yeah, again, it's interesting. I think I said it earlier, but it's interesting. I think they're a lot better against the better, even better possessional teams in terms of, deciding how to press them than they are against the weaker teams. And obviously there are different sort of approaches. Maybe it's because they don't want to uh, be too aggressive because they know the weaker teams will go long, which is, to be fair, the weaker teams tend not to go long against them because they set off. But it's just interesting that they look a lot more organized against teams like Lille and teams like Marseille, Well, the recent game against Marseille, than they do against, your as we were speaking, Montpellier or Angers. right? Um, besides that... Uh what else is there to touch on? I think they can have a pretty weird mid block shape at times. It feels like we're going in on to lose. We really do admire a lot about this team, but but we're here now, so we may as well go for it, right? Um I think what they have a sort of a four one two one two or four four two diamond shape, um sort of out of possession, which I, I guess you would just rather call a, a front three press but with the middle person sitting on the six, right? I think that's maybe a better way of of explaining it. Um, And then the wingers in that sort of pressing structure, often you see it from Newcastle, the wingers are like the horns of the press pressuring from out to in. And then they'd usually have the center forward sitting on the six then um, with the two center backs kind of being pincered in and then causing the pressure through that. Now that's fine and all, but I find it really interesting, the personnel that they use. And again, this is a problem that I think we do see with Toulouse's, is like their personnel usage for out of possession purposes. Whereas the front two will be Delinga and um De rather than for example if we had to go for Newcastle who do it um, or even Liverpool, it would be their wingers, right? Um, and then the person sitting on the sixth rather than the centre forward, obviously d De- is one of the wide one of the wide Uh, the horns I would call them right he's sitting on the sixth so what that means is that that second line then consists of the two wingers and spearing so we've already spoken about Zonally isn't fantastically awake and that also just makes them really weak and it makes it really easy to access wide things the wide the, the the players that are doing like the job that I think actually guys like Ratao and Abukla would be great at. And then having Delinga sitting on the six, it makes a lot more sense to me. Just having that sort of orientation makes them really easy to break through as well. So I think sometimes they have good ideas. Also, the fact that it's a mid-block makes it really weird. Because why are you not pressing higher in that situation? Um, but yeah, there's some weird things that I think ultimately do make them easy to, to break through. So this example I'm speaking about now was how they were defending against Montpellier, which is a match I watched I watched um, back. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think just to close off this section, Alex, it's also uh, worth talking about, I mean, I think we've already sort of touched on these points, but the things that they could develop on or improve for next season, I think the first one obviously being improving the focus and the concentration in 1v1 duels, being a lot more measured in their approach. Often we find that they are very erratic, uh, so I think that's that's one thing they definitely can improve. I know this uh, this next point is what you want to talk about is being able to find the wide forwards like Abu Klal, like, uh like Ratau in better spaces. Do you want to explain that?
0: Yeah, so maybe this isn't even a, a thing in terms of the development of the long-term, but I think good sides should have solutions in multiple phases and they are very resistant to going long, which they shouldn't be. Um, Bronco is one of the best... Line breaking, long passes, in world football, point like point blank, right. Um, and then a book club. Actually, think they have an incredibly good transition player. And we did actually see it in a, in in one match where you know Bronco did see from deep in a transition moment, just played the ball over. A book club took it on his chest, lovely one touch, and then finished. Yeah, that was with his, the. I think that was the with his first left goal. And the second touch. That was
1: the first goal against uh, Montpellier. Was that,
0: so this Montpellier match is obviously very clearly in my mind. But we don't see that enough. It it frustrates me a little bit how little I think they use a Buklal, who I would say is one of their best players, how little they use him in situations where he can really hurt sides. He's very good in 1v1 sort of things because he's good at, you know, taking a touch or two, shaping up and getting a shot off. A lot less impressive, I I would say, in sort of close combination versus set defenses he doesn't seem to find as much joy um and I think they don't they don't well not that he's bad but not nearly as good as I would say in those transition moments and I would I would think you would want to get they they could find a sorry I think they could find a little bit more joy using use using that sort of aspect of play to to unleash a Boklal um and then for sure as you were speaking about poor in one v one deals I also think this comes down to positioning in and out of possession i think a big thing is maybe personally improving on spearing as a six um finding someone who can be a really dedicated single pivot would be a long way to improving their shape but obviously it also comes from the coaching aspect um in terms of how they decide to yeah to structure their attack um and build maybe a more sustained possession approach that would be at least to me how I see they're taking another a next step. Not saying that they need to lose the sort of relational aspect as we've called in terms of how narrow they come and how they connect. But I think there does need to be some sort of compromise there at times. What would you say? Anything that you think I've, I've missed out on?
1: No, I think we've, we've covered all bases. And I think, I mean, if I I think if if we speak anymore, I think we're being really, really harsh on Toulouse. Uh, like you said, uh, we're, just, we're <laughs> just really punishing them. For, for everything but I think it's just I think the the criticism that we've seen is just because of how much we uh, we see their potential to be because of the quality of players that they have and clearly this is a squad that is at least in terms of the squad level and the quality of players that they have it is a step above the average league on side which is a again a credit to the recruitment that that has happened at the club so yeah, I think.
0: Shem Nanad's putting out a whole apology. <laughs> in the
1: pod. Hey, listen, man, if if, if Damian Kamoli somehow ends up listening to this episode, we need to have some apologies in here. So.
0: Well, yeah, I think that they are, I think they're a pretty great team, to be fair, in terms of a lot of what they've done. I think maybe we, we, we did skip over it more. I think the relational stuff is really fun to watch at times. Um, that close combination. I like, I like the philosophy and the approach. I really like the use of the centre-backs in terms of the amounts of, um, what would you say, the amounts of confidence they put in them to both of them are very good decision-makers and also very kind of aggressive in terms of the decisions that they make. And I think finding that balance is, is hard and they have two centre-backs who do do that quite well. I think the, the full-backs are also quite attacking. Maybe if you have a little bit of an improvement in the quality of those, you can see a lot more coming through but yeah they have good they have a good team
1: definitely and i think with that we've generally covered everything that you need to know about to lose in possession and out of possession let's take a short break alex and like after this break we'll go into the more fun part of the podcast which is to finish off with the <laughs> most important five pairs for the squad and also your wonder kit to watch so stay tuned for that all right, we're back. Uh, I have to be honest, listeners, Alex and I have spent a lot more time going through their <laughs> uh, starting 11 and their tactics more than what we imagined we would when we started planning out this episode. So we'll try to keep this section um, a little bit more concise. Going through the most important five players, I'll start with my picks. And I think you will also be in agreement with both Alex and I that their most important player is Vranka uh, is Vanden Bowman supremely gifted in possession and by far the the most important player of everything they do. And everything that happens for them, everything good that happens for them in in possession in the final third goes through him. And just to underline uh, his importance to the team and underline his quality, another start from, from our friends at Opta is that this season, Ranko Vanden Bowman has made 71 defensive line-breaking passes in League no other player in the top five leagues has managed more. Messi has 71. Vranco has 71. So I'll let you judge who is the better player out of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for my second uh, second pick after him is Anthony Roult, uh, the uh, French centre-back. Third behind him is uh, Brecht Dejahera. Fourth is Faris Shaibi. And fifth, somewhat controversially, is Mikel Dessler. Uh, Alex, okay. who's who's your uh, top five and who who have you included?
0: <laughs> so um my number one is also Bronco for sure van der Bowman. Uh my second is actually Brecht de Jihira. My third is Anthony Rowald. Now I struggle with these last two and I kind of feel like they're cop-outs, but I went for fourth, I went for a Buklal which I think I might have to do a little bit of justifying, even though I think he's one of the best. We've both had discussions about... Yeah, we will speak about that. And then Tej Stalinga, I kind of reluctantly put in fifth because at the end of the day, buckets is the main part of the game. You know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> so that was my five. Um, I'm happy that you put Roald so lo- so high because you know how much I love him. You actually put him higher than me again, like you put Motosiwa higher than I did last time. <laughs> um, why did you
1: decide him that high? So... I just think, like you know, he's he's really um, he's a decisive presence at the back. I feel like he imposes himself a lot more than Nikolaisen does, and in that sense, I think he is a lot more important than uh, than Nikolaisen. Of course, he's young and he can be erratic at times with his approach, but yeah, I feel like he has less. Um, I, I don't want to say brain dead. But maybe brain dead is a bit far, but he has less brain dead moments than uh, than Nikolaison does. And, yeah, in possession, again, another player who can spring those passes, really switch the ball to either flank really comfortably from from that right side and generally, generally deals with pressure relatively well, knows when to um, escape pressure and let the ball go to those wide areas and times his passes really well. So, yeah, I think that's that's why I have him sort of higher than De Gehera, which feels maybe a little bit harsh on him because, like, you know, we, we've talked about his... Um, off ball strengths, really bringing a lot to Toulouse's attack, and him being really important uh, out of possession for them. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's basically why I've I've gone for for World, uh for all those reasons. Uh, I'm interested. I'm interested to hear why you have a Boukhlal in your in your top five. So
0: my thing with a Boukhlal was hard to to balance it up because in one sense I feel like he's not being perfectly used within the team or at least he's not being optimized. So in some way, like you kind of say, well, then how important is he a, a player if he's not actually being used for the qualities he can bring, right? But at the end of the day, I do think he is their best player in attack, more so than DeLingo, who I actually have below him and who you left out entirely. Um, so I think I think he does add that he also has those moments of quality where he can break the team down, right? Um so I have him in for that, also with this idea that maybe they couldn't build a, around him a little bit more going forward. But yeah, that's generally why, I will be honest, I think there were a lot of people that I was kind of toying with for like those four and five spots that I ended up going for Roboclal and Delingo.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe my selection of Desler deserves some uh, defense. Maybe yes. maybe maybe because of how. But
0: actually, before that, before that, I'd like to hear why Shaibi. We didn't even have Shaibi in our starting lineup.
1: Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, of course, Sha- Shaibi uh, probably doesn't start as many games as he should, which maybe negates uh, my my point of of him being in the in the top five. But in my defense of him, I think he offers a great deal of versatility, which we've underlined so far. He he offers um, yeah he just offers a lot of energy in, in the final third in terms of how uh, how aggressive he is and then just being able to combine uh, with his full back really well and combining on that side with Ranko, I think he does that really well uh, whereas I don't think you see that interplay and that kind of uh, exchanges between Klal and Deshahera as much as you see it between Ranko and Shaibi on the other side so I think that's why I've sort of gone for him Ratao is a bit more direct than Shaibi that's for sure I think Shaibi still young and he's still developing um, that side of his game I think it ultimately depends on where Montanier sees him going forward in this team whether he sees him as part of that midfield three or does he he see him as someone who can take that Ratao role on the left and almost uh, be a creator slash dribbly presence on that left and less direct than Ratao, but still just as effective in what he brings in possession. So, yeah, that's why I have him in my my top five. So, I have Destler at fifth because of what he sort of brings in possession to the side and how he looks going forward. I think he's really um, interesting in how how he inverts in possession and how he's able to find those spaces inverting. Overlapping, he's not as good. We've seen that, you know, he is not necessarily the best at overlapping and really providing a perfect cross. I don't think that's his bag of tricks, really. What he is good at, however, is in, inverting into uh, those half spaces when Dejahera pulls out wide, when Ubuklal and Dejahera are on those sides. I think uh, Dessler does well to occupy those central areas a lot better and then provide uh, just options, just options for uh, Toulouse uh, to, to sort of move the ball into that right, uh, right those right spaces, and just, yeah, I think he's a lot more intelligent when he has the ball in front of him. Not so good tracking back. So I think, yeah, those are sort of the pros and cons of having him. I just have him fifth because of the pros that he provides, which may feel a bit harsh on Dalinga. You have him there fifth, which I can see perfectly why, you know, he is the goal getter for them. Um, but yeah, I think I just, I, I rate Desler's, uh, Desler's strengths in possession a little bit more, and that's why I have him at fifth.
0: I can get that. I, c- I can get with that. Yeah, I guess for De Linge, I had similar th- sorts of thoughts about him in terms of most important player. Like, what I was toying with is, obviously, he's doing a good job for the team. It was toying with the idea of how much, if you put some other player in, and we, we kind of just speak about it. Like, imagine Miron Bodi was actually now playing for Toulouse. Would he be doing a better job, potentially? You know, like, thinking about even players that maybe aren't even playing for Monaco. Like how, what kind of job would they do be doing in response? But I do think, especially that sort of anticipation and stuff that he does offer with their attacks, and it's fair to say that I don't think he always has. Is super supported in that final third, you know what I mean? With other, and I'm, by that I just mean occupation, like other players occupying, pying, uh, other players occupying defenders. I think he does a really admirable job and and deserves his flowers. Um, last player we haven't spoken about, um, I guess I'll justify um, Dejahira, why I had him second. And I think ultimately that sort of movement, I think we almost downplayed how good he is technically. He's not phenomenal technically, he's very competent though. Um, but it's that movement really does just facilitate the whole team. I actually think their attacks, when it goes down the left through Bronco, it's always happening because Bronco's pulling off some crazy good like pass. With de I actually think the dynamics work better. I think that's also a reason Dezla can come inside and stuff like that. So I think he is very underrated. I also think he is the best defensively of the three in the midfield. Um, not that that is the highest bar, but but he, he adds in that aspect there. Um, I do want to ask, though, because you, you've been trying to force in, not even very subtly force in, Bronco von der Bowman facts. Like every five minutes of this part. so I wanna, I wanna know, like, what you think of him as a player, but more so, given that his contract is running down, where do you think he goes next? Um, where do you think he can play? Where do you think suits him?
1: So before talking about where he could go next, I think it's important to mention that Toulouse do want to keep him, and Damien Kamali has speak has has spoken about the club's efforts to push him, or you know, to sort of uh, have have talks with him about extending his contract. It's, uh, it's not just him, of course. It's also Deja who's also out of a contract in the summer. Maxime Dupe. So they have quite a few players who are running down their deals. But in the event that he doesn't extend with Toulouse and goes elsewhere, I think Serie a could be a very good destination for him. I could very easily see him play for a team like Napoli. We've seen Paletti's team be so, so attractive in possession and what they do. I could see him do well there i could also see him do well in a team like inter for example being part of that midfield 3 uh replacing someone like Charanoglu, um, and being that key creative presence and also being surrounded by a competent defensive structure and allowing his passing range to fully come into come into effect um yeah just just making the best of his passing uh passing ability and again he has his goal scoring strengths from set pieces so those those are always going to be Important wherever he goes, but yeah, I think I think I see Syria as the best sort of uh, next destination for him. Uh, what about you, Alex? Where do you where do you see him sort of going next?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. That's part of why I asked you because I'm I'm interested to see where he goes and like how transferable his skill set is. Because mm. we've spoken a lot about his qualities, um, but I also do think defensively he could be a lot better. But also, even receiving deep, um, sometimes I think he gets himself into trouble. He doesn't have that. There's a reason he really does like to drop away from pressure to receive, because I don't think he's that great receiving under pressure, which is an important skill set for pretty much any midfielder that wants to play for a top possession-based side nowadays. Um, So I think that comes into it. But at the same time, his quality of his passing, as we've spoken about, and ability to break lines is so game-changing that he could really play for... It's worth covering over for many, you know... Premier League is kind of becoming this dominant league. I could see him being very, very useful in many teams where he is the main sort of passer. I personally didn't even think about him playing for teams like Napoli and, and Inter. Um, but I think you are, you do justify why, Olaf. Well, maybe I just have small doubts about him that have made me like opt on the safe side of where I see him as a player. Um, so maybe I'm being a bit too too conservative about the level that he can hit because, to be honest, he has been he has been fantastic for them.
1: No, well, definitely. I think those doubts are very well-founded. I think just, just in terms of how much he sees the ball, uh, that that's definitely one uh, benefit of why his numbers are so strong. But, you know, will he see those kind of uh, numbers at, say, an Arsenal, for example, or Man City, which is an extreme example, of course. But whether he will see those kind of numbers at different teams, we're not really sure. But I think with that, we have sort of covered our five most important players. To close this pod off, Alex, do you want to talk about the wonder kid to watch, Mr. Farish Shaibi, and take us through his profile?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I chose Farish Shaibi. One of the things I thought is that I would never choose a wonder kid that was in the top five, but I did not expect you to sneak. Shaybi into your f- top five, and obviously we don't know, know each other's top fives, because um, otherwise, maybe Anthony Rolts, only twenty-one years old himself, could have could have qualified. But no, I chose Shaiby, Um So just first to describe the player. Obviously, I'm going to bring this up. He was born in Lyon, came through the academy there uh, before signing his first professional contract with Toulouse when he was around sixteen or seventeen years old. He's recently declared for and has now represented um, Algeria. So he's an Algerian international. Um, only broke through into the first team at Toulouse this season. Not even last season in Ligue 2. Um, mainly as a left wing, as we've spoken about. But yeah, he's been he's come on at right wing, attacking mid, centre mid, um, even centre forward on occasion. And he has six non-penalty goals and six assists in 29 senior appearances so far which I think is pretty good going considering he spent time across different positions, as well as the type of player that he is, which maybe we get into now. Um, again, I would say he's very much in the OL graduate mold, you know what I mean? Um, technically refined player, kind of likes to act as that link between midfield and attack uh, and, and operate in the pockets. So I kind of see him as that like midfield-wide uh, player-like hybrid that we produce so often. Um so he enjoys playing in similar areas as someone like Awa. Um especially when Awa was younger and played out wide. He reminds me a bit there. Both right foot and like to lead play with that coming across, stepping in. But there are differences as well that really stand out. So Shaibi is six foot, a lot bigger than a lot of the grad OL graduates. Um, the technical attacking midfielders that we've produced, like Fakir, Awa, Cherki, and now Al-Arush coming through. So from that perspective, his body size, like, play style, and also the areas and positions he likes to operate in remind me a bit of Alex Awobi. actually. Uh, as people who know me will know, I'm a huge fan of that player. Um, so I'm a big fan of Shaibi as well. If we talk about his strengths, um, his first touch is exceptional, and he pairs it really well with a sort of a 360-degree awareness. And this is really where, like, the Awobi the comparisons come. So it means he can receive in these tight areas, and immediately connect with um teammates or find a route out you know of that pressure um and that t- that ties into him being an intelligent like socio-effective player and so by that i mean when he's combining with plays, he's very good at moving across zones knowing where to move where to facilitate and be part of that sort of impressive passer move into play or attacking moves that you do see um to lose get involved with right i think he is alongside Dejaheira, the biggest proponent of when they really are flowing, it's because of those two players getting in, um, getting involved. Obviously, they operate on different sides. But yeah. Um, otherwise, I think him as a passer stands out a lot. He has an exceptional passing bag, both in terms of quality and variety, whether it's the reverse pass, through balls, switch passes, those quick connective one-twos, even like weighted backheels, not just for, for healing's sake, but really smart um to do so. Um and that obviously also there's a really impressive vision that I think comes from that. Um and to add to that he's also quite he seems so far to be quite an assured finisher and ball striker in general. I think we're speaking about the Montpellier goal. Just the ease and class of which he finished that. Like it was a rocket, but it was a rocket from a glove. You know what (laughs) I mean? It was beautiful. Um in terms of weaknesses, I do think these stand out and make him a little bit trickier as a player to kind of get a handle on. So as skillful as he is and as great as his first touch is, I actually don't really like his close control because he can be a bit like clunky slash languid when he's carrying in tight spaces or trying to take someone on, which makes him loose in possession and not actually that effective 1v1 yet at least. Um, I think partly there's also that lack of explosiveness or top speed that hinders that ability 1v1. But, you know, there are other players that are really good 1v1 that don't have that explosiveness like shirky and, and sancho we can speak about um but they have a closer center of gravity that he doesn't really have and it, that's where you get that like a little bit clunky a little bit loose a little bit easy to dispossess i think we were actually looking through his take on numbers and they're pretty they're pretty bad i think they're actually not a fair re- for reflection of how good he is in terms of dribbling but they are an indicator of where he struggles and something that you would want from your wide player right or, or, to be honest, the type of midfielder he would be. Otherwise, I think this is something that he'll get better with in time, is defensive discipline. But this is more so when he's out as like a wide player defensively than as a midfielder. He reacts to situations slowly, doesn't position himself correctly. He's too easy to manipulate getting sucked into what the opposition, opposition wants him to do. Uh, but yeah it does seem a little better in, in deeper areas and i think he's pretty good in like actual duels he uses his frame and strength quite well um so ultimately like as in a projection or an assessment of the player he's he's an interesting one to see develop i can see him developing certain things really well like maybe his dribbling and close control that'll take him up a lot as a player but it's definitely, like, the type of player that he ends up being. Like, I'm not 100% sure what his best position or role will be. And that's also an issue because then I'm not convinced, like, that you can just plug him into a system. You kind of need to build him into a system a little bit um, for him to really, like, realize his strengths. Um, I would love to actually see how he would do in a possession-based attacking side where he sort of dealt with, like, keeping the possession, passing it back in, like, a- as a wide operator where you would have the other winger, like for example, a book club being that outlet and him kind of operating. Yeah. Almost like even in a box midfield from from the wide area coming in and controlling. So yeah, that's my those are my general thoughts on him. ultimately I'm a big fan of him as a player. I think he's got an interesting skill set, a combination of a lot of different players that I do like. Um with some weaknesses that it will be interesting to see how he can yeah, build around them. I think ultimately he should stay with Toulouse for a while. He still has a good bit of developing to do. We'll see where he is at in two seasons, and maybe he's made a big jump, or maybe he is just going to be one of the classic mid-table heroes in in 1.
1: Another another Savonier, you think? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was even thinking like Ludo Blast, but I think to be fair to Ludo, he's he deserves a move up at some point. Yeah,
1: we'll see. We'll see. Well, listeners, I think it should come as no surprise that an Olympic Lyon fan picks a former Lyon uh native <laughs> from this team as is wonder kid to watch but we leave it at that uh farish shaibi is our wonder kid to watch from toulouse and with that we finish our deep dive on toulouse uh thank you so much for listening thus far alex thank you so much for your time today and for your contributions thank you thank you um any contributions no no thank you for coming to the pod ninard you know, it is, it is my pod. I mean, it is our pod. I'm sorry. It is our pods. So of course, yeah, I have I see to... your main character
0: syndrome coming through. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but okay, let's, let's call it a day here, Alex. Um, thank you so much listeners for sticking with us. Uh, we hope you found this podcast a- interesting and uh, insightful. Once again, a, th- a big thanks to the Training Gang Guru for hosting that podcast with Damien komoli uh, for all the insight that we derived from that. And for your next episode, it, it will be a deep dive, hopefully, on Leo, so stick around for that. We'll see you in the next one.